0: Father, do remind us of the power of your word today as we look at it. This is how we know you. This is how we know Christ. As we're going to see today, this is how we know our salvation. Lord, I pray that we would not take that casually or lightly ever. That every time we engage with your word, we would realize what a precious, supernatural experience this is. Your word will not return to you void. It will always do exactly what you intend for it to do. And so, Father, we want to come humbly today. And we want your word to work in our hearts So please work this morning, Lord, in Christ's name, amen. So if you would turn in your Bibles to John chapter 1. John chapter 1, Um, we are still working our way slowly now through the the prologue here. And so this morning we're going to look at verses 4 through 9. 4 through 9, so two uh, two of my favorite characters from literature and media... Uh, go by the names Puddleglum. Some of you may recognize the name Puddleglum. Or my other one of my favorites is he goes by the name Eor. <laughs> Puddleglum and Eeyore, they're kindred spirits. Uh, you meet Puddleglum when you read C.S. Lewis's book The Silver Chair, and uh, he's very well named because he is just so incredibly glum about everything. He has the amazing gift of turning everything into something miserable, turning your birthday into just another step closer to the day you're going to die. Eeyore also has the same gift. He has the same gift of taking the hundred acre woods and making it into such a terrible, drab, dreary place that's full of awful things. It's funny when you see Puddleglum and you see Eeyore in their natural habitats, because when you read the Chronicles of Narnia, it's a, it's, it's a book, it's a series full of hope. As the reader, you always know that Aslan is there, and you always know that Aslan will arrive, and you always know that there's going to be hope. Even when they might be in a giant's castle, and they might be the next thing on the menu, you know it's okay, because Aslan is there, and there's always hope. And the Hundred Acre Woods with Winnie the Pooh, I mean, come on, it's probably the most amazing place that you could spend a summer. And so it's it's funny to see these characters there because they stand in such stark contrast to what we know is the truth within those narratives. We know That those worlds that were created are worlds that have hope. They are worlds that have goodness. They have worlds that have meaning. And so when we know that, because we know what Narnia is like, and we know what the Hundred Acre Woods is like, we see how Puddleglum and we see how Eeyore, they stand out, because what they're living like and what they're saying, it, it doesn't match with what we know is the truth within those particular worlds. And yet, there they are. And they're there because Puddleglum and Eeyore live in our world, too, don't they? You may be a kindred spirit to Puddleglum or Eeyore, or you may know one of their kindred spirits. It's kind of genius that they're in those narratives, though, because they remind us that we also live in a world that is grounded with hope. We live in a world where, where we know how the story is going to end. We have our own Aslan. And he's better. and He's the truth. We're meeting him here in John. And so in the same way that when we see Eeyore and we see Puddleglum and, and Narnia and we see they, they, their lives don't quite match up with the worlds they live in, it's also true here for us that, that glum and Eeyore don't match up with what we would know to be the truth when we come to Scripture. They don't have life and light within them. It's all been dimmed. It's all dreary. The question I want us to consider this morning is, where is your life and light? Where do they come from? Where do they come from? Where do your life and light come from? Do you see that we live in a world that has an objective life and an objective light? And so when we're tempted, and, and I'm tempted, I mean, I like Eeyore and Puddle Glum for a reason. I'm tempted to, to relate to them. We need this reminder here of where our life and our light is. The kids that traveled with Puddle Glum, they, they realized they had to take upon themselves eventually to to keep him going to keep him positive they had to even guard themselves against him right puddle glums and eeyores are contagious and so they had to guard themselves and they had to continue to push him so to eeyore's friends in the 100 acre woods they have to work to keep eeyore positive and sometimes we do as well how do we do that That's what we want to look at this morning. Where do you get your life and your light from? John chapter 1, verses 4 through 9. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light, the true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. So I'm going to break this down into three points this morning for us. First, we're going to look at life. And then after we look at life, we're going to look at light, and we're going to connect life and light together. And then third, this morning, we're going to talk about how Jesus is coming to give light. So first this morning, life. John uses the word life 36 times in this gospel. That's more than any other New Testament book. In fact, it's more than twice as much as the number two book on that list. And the number two book on that list is the book of Revelation, which was also written by John. Now, the the number three book on that list is the book of Romans. That was written by Paul. But the number four book on that list is the book of 1 so the top three books in the New Testament that use the word life the most, I mean, in the top four, the top three of those are from John. John really likes this word life. He likes it a lot. He wants you to understand what life really is. If you want to do a study on what life is, you must read the, book of, the books of John because he loves to talk about it. He loves to explain what life is and usually... Typically, when John uses the word life, he's talking about eternal life. Usually when John uses the word life, he's talking about our hope in the future for a life that goes beyond this world. In fact, almost always that's what John's going to refer to in his letters when he talks about life. The future life, the life that goes beyond this life, the life that is found with Christ. But here, that's not how he's using this word. And what we're going to see is that here, he's actually giving us the foundation for why he will later be able to emphasize all over the place that you will have eternal life in Jesus. All over the place, he's going to say that you will have eternal life in Jesus if you trust in him. But today, what we're looking at is the foundation for why he can say that. And so instead of referring to eternal life, what John's doing here is he's making a parallel to creation. He's looking back to the beginning to show us how life will be in Jesus. When he says that in him was life, that's exactly what he means. In this word that became flesh, in, in, in this man, in Jesus, there is the power of life Itself. So in John chapter 5, Jesus is going to say, As the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. So, so this is a, a unique phrase here of life in himself. This is that picture of self-existence. He has life. It's his. He has power over it. This is the life of creation. This is the life of being. This is the life that allows God to say, I am who I am. He has this life. That's the very nature of who Jesus is. And we see that he had it at creation, and he has always had it. So in him was life. And so that's where he wants to start, because... The word that he's talking about here is the same one who, what did he do at creation? At creation, he's the one who brought everything to life. That's how much in him was life. At creation, he's the one who it was his power that made us all alive anyway. So we have to start by realizing in him was life. But then he he, he makes this connection here to light. He says, in him was life, and then he says, the life was the light of men. And, and so now we want to we see this connection. We want to look from life to light. And following John's thought here, it's not, it's not so simple. You know, commentators are going to point out that John, as a writer, he loves to do more than one thing uh, with every word that he uses. Uh, so, so there's always depth to what he's saying. There, there's a lot of symbolism, and, and he uses it often. So to understand what John's doing here when he talks about light and he connects it to life, let's actually go back, if you would, to the book of Isaiah. So if if you would, let's let's, let's look at three passages in the book of Isaiah. The first one we're going to look at is Isaiah chapter 9. We're going to look at Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2. Because this will help us. We're going to see that the themes of light and darkness, they're going to come up over and over again in the book of John. The theme of light and darkness is as prevalent in the book of John as any theme that John has. He loves light and darkness as well. But he did not come up with this. And that's what we need to see. Isaiah chapter 9 verse 2. So this is, this is the famous Christmas passage. right? This is the, the famous Christmas passage that includes, For to us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. So this comes before that verse Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2 says, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. So the picture here is of a world that's filled with darkness and of the people of God who live in this dark world. And the prophecy that Isaiah is giving is that in the darkness, they are going to see this great light, and this light's going to shine on them. And this light ultimately is going to bring them hope. This light is ultimately going to bring them salvation. That's the world that the people of God live in. It's a world that may seem dark, but light is coming. It's been promised. And that light's going to coincide with the child that's born. He will be a light to the people in darkness. So that's the first passage I want us to look at in Isaiah. The second one, flip over to Isaiah chapter 49. Isaiah chapter 49, verse 6. Okay, so in Isaiah 49, Isaiah is giving here a prophecy about the coming servant of the Lord. Your, your Bible probably has put a, a chapter heading on Isaiah 49, and, and I'm willing to bet that chapter heading is something like the servant of the Lord because this is what he's prophesying is going to happen, which, of course, we know that this is the same person that he was prophesying about in chapter 9 with the child. And so here in Isaiah 49, verse 6, he says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. So he's talking here about what this servant is going to do. And he says, I'm not going to settle for it. It's not enough. It's too light of a thing to merely bring back the people from Israel. It's too too light of a thing to merely focus on this one people group because what was the promise that he made to Abram, you remember? He made to Abram that he would be the father of many nations. And so here we see him speaking to the servant, and he says to the servant, you will be a light to the nations in this dark world. And that light's connected to his salvation. You know, this is the thing about light and darkness in, in Scripture. This is the thing about light and darkness in Isaiah. It's the thing about light and darkness in John. They are symbols, aren't they? They're symbolic. Darkness, what is that symbolic for? Well, it's symbolic of spiritual death. It's symbolic of rebellion. It's symbolic of blindness, isn't it? You can't see in darkness. Darkness is symbolic for those things John John's going to say in John chapter 3 that people actually love that darkness rather than the light. And what's the light? The light, of course, is salvation. The the light is purity. The light is righteousness and life in the middle of that death. That's what light is. And so here's how life and light connect. If darkness is, is a picture of spiritual death, Life. Light is a symbol of spiritual life. And that life and that light, they're connected to the child that's in Isaiah 9. They are also connected to the promise of the servant in Isaiah 49, who's going to bring salvation to the ends of the earth. How is the child going to bring this light? How is the child going to be the one who brings a light in the darkness? How is the servant going to bring a light to the nations? How is this possible? There's one more passage I want us to look at in Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 60, verses 1 through 3. Isaiah chapter 60, verses 1 through 3. Okay, so here in in Isaiah, Isaiah just finished saying in chapter 59 that a Redeemer was going to come to Zion. And this Redeemer was coming to those who turn from transgressions. So he just got done saying that in in Isaiah 59. He said, there is a redeemer who's coming in the middle of this world, in the middle of your trials, in the middle of all of this. But he's coming to those who turn from their transgressions. And then God mentions his covenant that he's going to keep. And then God says this in Isaiah 60 verses 1 through 3. Arise, shine, for your light has come and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you, and nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. When you think about it, John gives us a parallel to this promise in his prologue, doesn't he? Isaiah says darkness shall cover the earth, which of course that calls to mind the state of creation at the very beginning. Before God brought light and order, darkness covered the face of the deep, just as John recalls the very beginning. And what what happened? The power of the word of God spoke and life came into being. God has shown before, in other words, He has shown before that when darkness is over his creation. He has the power to speak and bring life. He's already shown that in creation. So when Isaiah mentions it here, we've already seen the proof that God is able to do this. He's able to do this now. Isaiah says, the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. John tells us that the word has come. And what does John say about that word? He says that we have seen his Glory. Glory as of the only son from the Father. John didn't come up with the themes of light and darkness. He's picking them up from the prophets. You know, we could have mentioned Malachi... Malachi says something very similar to what Isaiah says here. Malachi, who he writes the last book in the Old Testament, period. So, so the very last words of the very last book that was written before Jesus was born are that the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in his wings. And that sun spelled S-U-N. The picture there is that the one that Malachi promises is coming, he's going to come like the sunrise in the darkness. He's going to bring light. John isn't making up some new theme here. What he's doing, though, is he's weaving together all these prophecies, and he's telling us that, one, Jesus is the fulfillment of them, and two, he's making sure that we understand the truth we saw last week, the fulfillment of these prophecies about light coming. It wasn't just that it was a child. It wasn't just that it was a servant. We get a glimpse of it in Isaiah 60. Who was it? It was God. It was the Word. Only God himself, only God himself could be the one who fulfills these promises. Why? Why is he the only one who can bring light that shines through this darkness? This darkness of spiritual death, this darkness of blindness, this darkness of rebellion. Why? Because in him was life. He is the one who created life, He is the one who upholds life. In him is life. He's the only one who could give us hope. You cannot separate the God of life that you see in creation from the light that is the hope of this fallen world. Because it's only by His power that the darkness will be overthrown. Isn't that amazing? This is the true light. That's connected with true life. So this is part of the reason why, in, in our, going back to our passage now in John 1.6, it's part of the reason why we see John the Baptist introduced. I said a couple weeks ago, John was introduced this way so that we could clearly see that the son didn't start being the son when John the Baptist started preaching about him. But that the, the son was the son from the beginning. And and I made the point, all the other gospels sort of start Jesus' ministry with John the Baptist. John here seems to be very intentional in going, his ministry didn't start with John the Baptist. His ministry started in the beginning when everything was created. And again, that's the grounding for why he brings you and I hope. He brings you and I hope because he's the same one who brought us life and creation in the first place. It's all of God. But here we see another reason why John is introduced. We're told he came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. So in other words, people may have been amazed at John the Baptist. It sounds like, if you read about John the Baptist, it sounds like he was kind of an amazing guy. Uh, he He was probably a very overwhelming presence in many ways. We love to find leaders that we can follow. We love to attach ourselves to leaders, and some may have thought that John himself was their hope, that he was their promised one, but no. John, the gospel writer, John, the disciple, wants it to be clear, there's only one who is light, which is a really good reminder for us, isn't it? Because we do tend to attach ourselves to strong, dynamic leaders. We tend to put our hope in them. We count on our strong, dynamic leaders to always do the right thing. We count on them to always say the right thing. They're the ones we look at first to act, and we want to see how they're responding before we gauge our own response. And as long as those leaders are around, we tend to feel more confidence in how things are going to turn out, don't we? It's just natural for us to do that. Strong leaders are a blessing. One of the reasons strong leaders are a blessing is because they provide an umbrella for us to live under. They provide an umbrella for us to live fruitfully under as they carve out a path for us to follow. Strong leaders are a blessing. And you'll see that there are people who are very attached to John the Baptist. But don't be fooled. Don't ever be fooled. Don't ever let yourself be fooled. It takes more than being strong, intelligent, brave, courageous, or charismatic to bring light into this dark world. It takes someone divine. It takes someone perfectly holy. It takes someone with the power to create life. Don't ever settle for less than that. Don't ever put your hope in the wrong place. Our hope is in Jesus. All of the strong leaders that we love, that have influenced us, that have strengthened us, that have been umbrellas to us over the years, none of them can overcome death, can they? Even if nothing else, they can't overcome that. No. This is why John... This is why he says he was not the light. He was not the light. He was a witness, though, that confirms that Jesus of Nazareth is the true light of the world. And this is the interesting thing, too, isn't it? John the Baptist doesn't claim that he is the light. John the Baptist says, there's one coming after me. I'm not even worthy. I'm not even worthy to get down at the level of his sandals. (laughs) John knows The Baptist, he knows what's up. But again, it's our nature. It's our nature to settle for things that are less than Jesus. John, the disciple, wants to overwhelm you with who Jesus is. He wants to overwhelm you with why would we settle for a smaller hope than the Word of God. We'd be foolish to. Why would we settle for even a lesser vision of who Jesus is than that he is the eternal word of God? Don't you know who your Savior is? And so we see life is what allows us to say that he is the light of the world. So let's talk about verse 9 here. My third point is Jesus gives light. Verse 9 says, The true light which enlightens everyone was coming into the world. Okay, so the world's in spiritual darkness. Isaiah set that up for us. And of course, when you talk about light coming like John does, you, you kind of have to assume the place that light's coming to is dark. It doesn't really make sense to say light's coming somewhere. It's already there. In fact, John says that he's coming into the world. The word he uses there is cosmos. Uh, D.A. Carson helps us here because he went through every usage of the word world in John. It's one of the reasons why commentaries can be helpful to you. He went through every usage of the word world in John and he found something surprising. That word's never used by John in a strictly positive sense. Ever. You may be able to make the argument that sometimes it's used in a neutral sense. But you can't make the argument that he ever uses it anywhere in a strictly positive sense. And generally speaking, when John says the word world, he generally means a negative. It has a negative tone to it. And that makes sense here. The light is coming into the world. The world needs it. The world needs it. This is why we relate to Puddleglum and Eeyore. Because they're not entirely wrong. Are they? Sometimes Puddleglum and Eeyore have a truer picture of what the world is like than those around them. It is dark. And John is definitely going to confirm that the world is spiritually dead and the world rebels against God, you would think, right? Just just reading this and reading it, if we were just to read it as a story, you would think that everyone would agree that bringing light to darkness is a good thing. But we're going to see that for some, it's not at all a good thing. For some, light and darkness is a terrible thing. The first response to light is what? John's going to tell us it here in the prologue. The first response to light is rejection of it. The the first response to seeing the light is no. The truth is that so many who are in darkness, you want to stay there. You don't want to change. Don't want to, to be transformed. So many have grown comfortable, or at least if they've not grown comfortable, they have grown well and truly enslaved to darkness. And we don't like to be shown that. We don't like to be shown as evil. We can't stand to be criticized. We can't stand to be judged. You know, one of the main reasons that people reject the good news, the good news of Jesus Christ, is that the first step to accepting the good news of Jesus Christ is to accept, to own, that you're a terrible sinner who deserves condemnation. The first step to accepting the good news that Jesus Christ comes to save Sinners is to confess, I'm a terrible sinner. The, the first step to, to, to accepting the good news that Jesus brings life is to accept that you're dead. And we can't stand that. It's to accept that you've loved the darkness. we are going to see next week The light that Isaiah prophesied does come to Israel. After hundreds of years, and what does Israel do to the light? Rejects it. It hates the light. This is the mindset of the world. We need to hear that. Loving the light. I mean, loving the darkness and hating the light is the mindset of the world. We need to keep that in mind as we hear more and more people tell us what life should be like. As we hear more and more people tell us how we should live. As we are going to hear more and more people tell us what our priorities should be. And, and how we should live together. If these same people are rejecting Jesus and his word, they have already shown that they love the darkness rather than the light. We need to be careful. I'm going to jump ahead a little bit, but Jesus himself explains to us why this happens in John chapter 3, verse 19. Jesus says, and this is the judgment, the light has come into the world, and the people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. We hate the light. We don't want to be exposed. We're afraid of being exposed. We will fight against being exposed. People will murder so that they're not exposed to cover up their sins. Isn't this a great irony? We will do so much to try and cover up our sins in darkness. We will lie to cover up our sins in darkness. We will deceive. We will manipulate. We will murder to cover up our sins in darkness and not have them exposed. But the great irony is, what would happen if you... if you brought those sins into the light of Christ? What would happen if instead of us trying to cover up our sins with darkness, what would happen according to the Bible, not according to our fears? Our fears are going to lie to us. Our fears are going to say, oh, you can't do that. You're going to lose control. Oh, you can't do that. But what, according to the Bible, what happens if instead of us covering our sins with our own darkness, we bring our sins into the light of Christ? Well, the amazing thing is, if you bring your sins into the light of Christ and you confess them to the Lord and you believe in Him, does He condemn you for those sins that you brought into the light? No. He covers them. He covers them with his perfect righteousness, doesn't he? Isn't that what scripture tells us? That he became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God? That he might give us mercy? Isn't it so funny? And and, and when I say funny, I don't mean like in a ha-ha. It's really tragic. But it's ironic, isn't it, that that we invest so much of our time covering our sins in darkness, hiding our sins in darkness, when the Bible tells us if you would, instead of listening to those lies, you would bring your sins into the light of Christ, you would let them be exposed to God himself and be judged, and you confess those sins, and you turn from them, and you believe in this word, because in him is life. He'll cover your sins. He'll cover your sins with his own blood. He'll save you. The light is there. It's Christ. It's Jesus. It's the word of God. He gives that light to those who believe in him. He comes. John tells us he comes to give light. And what happens? When instead of rejecting the light of God, instead of rejecting the hope of the Creator, what happens when we believe in Him? Now, this is the truth. When you believe in Christ, He saves us from all our unrighteousness, He cleanses us, He makes us holy, He gives us a hope that can't be touched. It can't be destroyed by anything. There is nothing that can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is why when we see Puddleglum in Narnia, we see that he does not live in a way that's consistent with the worldview that C.S. Lewis created for Narnia. Why is it not consistent? Because we know Aslan is there. We know that Aslan is watching over them. And so we see it's not consistent. We know in the Hundred Acre Woods, everything always turns out all right. You know it's it's not going to end in tragedy in the Hundred Acre Woods. And so we know that Eeyore, his life is not consistent with the world he lives in. Christian, When Christ is our light, when he is what we look at as our life and our light, when he is the one that we come to, when we bring our darkness into the light to be exposed and throw ourselves on his mercy, we have hope. We have life. We may be prone to be a puddle glum, and you may feel that but we battle against it with the life of Christ and the light of Christ. What happens when you believe in the light that comes from God? This is where we want to end. What happens? Turn over to Ephesians chapter 5. What happens to us? Because Paul is the one who actually answers our question. What happens when you believe in the light that comes from God? It's no surprise The same God who is behind John's book is the same God who is behind Paul and his writings. It's the same God who's unfolding his whole story. And so it's through Paul that we get this answer here. What happens when you believe in the light, when you step out of the darkness into the light of Christ? In Ephesians chapter 5, beginning in verse 6, you read, Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. He just got done giving a list of sinful things, dark things that are in the human heart. Verse 7, therefore do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness. You were darkness. But now you are light in the Lord. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, awake, O sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully, then, how you walk, not as as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Paul says, at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. He's talking about this beautiful transformation that has happened to us because of Christ he gives this picture of a sleeper awakening that's what it's like to be in the darkness dead, blind dull a sleeper I'm just making this connection but Eeyore always looks sleepy I don't know if you ever noticed that a sleeper The light has come. It opens your eyes. You awake from it. You see the light. At one time, you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Believing in and trusting in Jesus is what brings you out of that dead place. This is why Jesus is so important. He's the central figure. Without him, we would have nothing because in him is life. And life is what you and I desperately need in the darkness. Coming to Jesus, believing in Him, confessing our own sin, confessing that rebellious reality of who we are. We have been transformed by Christ. And now, what have you become? Paul says, Christian, you yourself have become light. Why is that? Because you have Christ. If you have Christ in you, then you also have the life that Christ has given us. This is where our hope of eternal life comes from. In Christ, you have been given that life, and Christ has the power of creation. You'll bear fruit as a child of the light. And those fruits are going to be different than the evil, blind, rebellious fruits of a heart that worships itself. You will expose darkness just by your very nature as a Christ follower. And it won't always be easy. In this life, it won't always be easy because the world is still dark until the light comes again and fully purges the darkness Walk in the light. We're going to want to go back in the darkness sometime. And when you let your guard down, Christian, when you let your guard down and you're not intentional, you're not walking in the light, you're not coming to the Word, you're you're, you're not sitting in God's grace, when you're not doing that, when you let your guard down, you are inevitably going to start shuffling into the darkness. It's our nature. You let your guard down and you will just start shuffling your way into the darkness. You'll start covering things over again. Bring it to the light. Where is your life and light today? We live in a dark world, obviously. It's it's only getting darker. Sin is everywhere. Good is called evil. Evil is called good up is down, down is up. It's dark. People are so blind. They are so blind that they are able to say ridiculous things and believe that they're true. It's dark. Where is your life and your light in the midst of that darkness? Right now, if you were to answer that question, what would your answer be? Where has my life and my light been in the past months? What has been my life? What has been my light in the past year? What is my life and my light now? And then, if it's not Jesus, how can Jesus become your life and your light? The light of grace, the light of Christ covering our sins. Even when you and I stumble and fall, Right? We always have hope. Bob started off the service reading from 1 John. But I, I stopped my, my, my reading choice right before these words. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. So that you may not sin. In a world filled with darkness, so that you may not sin. That you would, you would have the fruit of light instead of the fruit of evil. But John continues, he says, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous, because in him is life, and that life is the light of the world, and there is no other for you than Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much. for just the overwhelming truth in our passage today. You have covered all the bases. You have shown that you have the power to overthrow darkness. You have shown it has always been your plan to overthrow darkness. You have shown that Jesus is so much more than we often think he is. You have shown why we could not put our hope in anyone else but Jesus, and it be true. And so, Lord, I pray for each one of us today that we would, if we are walking in the darkness, if we're shuffling over towards the darkness, if we're trying to cover our own sins in darkness, Lord, I pray that we would come into the light and find grace we would come into the light and find hope and mercy. We would come into the light because in the light we find Christ. And in Christ we find life eternal. Lord, I pray that this would be our hope. Until he returns. In Christ's name, amen.